Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization project based at Lancaster University's Richardson Institute and funded by Carnegie Corporation. Today, I'm joined by Joost Hiltemann, the Program Director for Middle East and North Africa at International Crisis Group. Joost has got a, a fascinating backstory and a fascinating body of work that straddles the, the intellectual, the academic, and also the more policy-focused and, and the journalistic-focused. He's the author of, of two books, A Poisonous Affair, America, Iraq, and the Gassing of Halabja, and Behind the Intifada, Labour and Women's Movements in the Occupied Territories. But Joost, I'm afraid I can't list all of your, um, your policy pieces and your journalistic pieces because that would take up the, the duration of the podcast. So I hope you'll excuse me for that. <laughs> I think I don't mind one bit. No, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It's, it's really exciting to, to talk to you. I first read your work when I was doing my PhD about a decade ago, and it's, it's some really fascinating stuff that I've, I've continued to, to keep a close eye on. Because I think you do a really fascinating job of, of bringing together a range of different... Uh, levels of analysis, a range of different empirical and theoretical issues, all, all obviously pertaining to the contemporary Middle East. But I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this field in the first place, please. Um, well, the, 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 the short ma- ma- uh, answer to that is marriage. But, right, okay. Um, but I wasn't married to the Middle East, of course, and um, I was, in fact, married to a young American woman, uh, and the marriage didn't last. But um, it did an- uh, help us uh, get started in the Middle East. And, right. Uh, I spent a year in Egypt okay. back in the early 80s uh, and teaching at the uh, American University there. Uh, and then uh, I ended up uh, through uh, some of my students in the occupied West Bank for a few days. And I was uh, mesmerized by right. uh, what I saw there, the very difficult political situation, also the, the high level of uh, education that many uh, Palestinians had and and the kinds of arguments they made, which were quite sophisticated and not, you know, sort of the black and white uh, Arab-Israeli that you get so often. Um, so it was a real education for me. Uh, of course, I also had friends on the Israeli side. The, um, uh, I spent ended up uh, going back there and spending five years in the occupied West Bank working for a Palestinian human rights organization called Al-Haq. Right. And that was really my formative experience in my life, uh, to be able to work with them in a very uh, nuanced and intelligent way, uh, addressing a very serious human rights a uh, problem, a uh, set of problems uh, caused by the occupation, but also there were a lot of local drivers of human rights violations, right. and trying to figure out uh, a way to address these in a, in a constructive way uh, um, and, and find a way also to, toward the end of the occupation, which of course has failed. Yeah, and just out of interest, was that based in Ramallah? And that was based in Ramallah, that's right. So Al-Haq is based in Ramallah. I lived in Ramallah for about two, two and a half years, and then in East Jerusalem for uh, the remaining uh, two and a half years before I decided that enough was enough, uh, I was tired and, and left. Wonderful. And that did that prompt a, a journey back into into education, or was this on the back of, uh, of, of um, undergraduate, postgraduate study? 
Well, so the interesting thing is that I went to to Palestine um, in order to to do my dissertation research, and I did do it, and I did finish my dissertation during that period. I went back to the University of California for a few months uh, during this period uh, to submit the dissertation, a dissertation which was later published, of course. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned it already. Um, but um, basically, uh, after that, I had been sold on the notion that real change in the world uh, can be brought about through mass movements, which I saw in the Intifada, of course, and um, through you know activists on the ground who are presenting ideas uh, and interesting ideas, of course, about how to address difficult, complex uh, predicaments. Um, and so uh, when I, I didn't go back to academia, even though I was teaching at Georgetown for a little while, um, but I, I became immersed in the um, in the non-governmental uh, world. Uh, so after that, uh, I ended up working for as a consultant for a number of human rights NGOs in the United States and in Britain. And then uh, eventually um, I fully moved into uh, full-time uh, jobs with organizations like that. That's really interesting. I have a, a close friend and a, a co-author of mine who had a similar experience of going out to Palestine for his uh, for his PhD and ended up spending a great deal longer than he intended, let's say, out in the West Bank, again in, in Ramallah. So it's a, a common theme, perhaps. Yeah, that resonates with me because, you know, I, I originally went for one year. Right. And then before I knew it, it was five. Well, he only managed three, so uh, not <laughs> well, quite still. as impressive. <laughs> That, that's really interesting to hear you say, though. But obviously, your your intellectual background, your your education, had a, a massive impact on on how you approach these these real life problems, if you will. So I really benefited from my uh, studies in sociology. I had been, you know, I studied uh, philosophy as an undergrad in Ohio. Likewise. Uh, not in Ohio, so, but likewise. Right, right. Um, uh, I was there as a foreign exchange, not exchange, but foreign student uh, from Holland. And then um, I spent two years at uh, at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, one year in Bologna, one year in uh, Washington. Um, so I had an international relations background. But then something I felt something was missing uh, from my education, and I wasn't really ready for the for the job world. So um, I ended up going to uh, to the other end of the of the United States to to California. And there I, uh, I pursued a, a PhD in sociology at the University of California in Santa Cruz, which was really a, uh, a superb experience uh, because uh, of course you, you're taught a, an academic discipline with dis- emphasis on discipline, methodological discipline especially some theory I was never a man for theory uh, but we, we did that too and um, um, but so I, I, with that in my pocket uh, going to the occupied West Bank um, was was very interesting because it gives you a certain lens through which you analyze what you what you see there on a daily basis and I went there to to originally to um, look at the, the predicament of uh, migrant workers Palestinian workers working in Israel as part timers or as full-timers but uh, going back and forth commuting sure. um, but I ended up looking more at um, uh, as I was there and discovered what was really going on uh, at the um, uh, social movements that they were creating uh, uh, especially the labor movements and the women's organizations that arose from this particular experience of um, living under military occupation and working in the work sites of the occupying power. It's, it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting to hear you articulate the, the thought processes behind doing that and, and your experiences with that. But then 
looking back on your career, yours, there's a change of pace at some point, probably a couple of years after, but then you move on to looking at it's a, a particularly tragic chapter of, of the, I guess, the recent past of the Middle East and, and the case of Halabja. What prompted that move? Well, it wasn't really Halabja that drew me. And, and in fact, uh, in hindsight, when I uh, have written a book, of course, about uh, Halabja and, and related matters, and uh, I say in the introduction that uh, in 1988, when Halabja occurred, I was not aware of what had happened there. I was in Palestine, and yeah. uh, the fo- my focus was quite different, and uh, you, you can be living in quite a bubble. So, um, But in 1990, when I went back, when I went to Washington, actually, to teach and to work for Middle East Report, a, a great uh, magazine on U.S. policy in the Middle East uh, under the editorship of Joe Stork. Um, then I became uh, um, sort of, I was working for a number of human rights organizations. Uh, human Rights Watch came to me and said, um, uh, you know, we, we've uh, we've gained access to northern Iraq because uh, Iraqi forces have withdrawn from the Kurdish areas. And uh, we understand that some terrible things happened. Are you willing to go? I had already been for another organization. So I had had uh, already uh, views both from Baghdad and from the north, the northern side. So I was quite eager to do it. Sure. And I, we started investigating what was known as the Anfal campaign. And that was a counterinsurgency campaign in 1988 that amounted to uh, genocide of rural Kurds. And Halabja was one aspect of that. Sure. Okay. And it's really a a tragic story. For anyone who's who's not all that familiar, I I strongly urge you to to read your book, but do so um, in the knowledge that it is a a particularly abhorrent set set of incidents. And after that then, Jos, you you seem to move around a little bit in terms of, of, of what you're focusing on. This is true, and, and the reason is simple. The the project on, on uh, the, for Human Rights Watch on the Kurds, actually it was extended beyond my field investigation in northern Iraq to also include uh, almost a year and a half of uh, studying Iraqi uh, secret police documents in Washington that had been transferred there by the Kurdish parties. Um, but once that project was over, um, you know, I was back on the job market, and Human Rights Watch was uh, kind enough to, to offer me the position of, um, of executive director of their arms division, right. which was quite different from anything I was doing. In fact, it had nothing to do with the Middle East in principle. Sure. Uh, but it was very, it ended up being intellectually uh, absolutely fascinating because it was a new set of issues that I was not familiar with. I, I was familiar with international humanitarian law because of the Palestinian situation, the Geneva Conventions. Yeah, of course. Um, but, but not really with the, 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 the notion that weapons uh, are tools in the commission of um, uh, international humanitarian law violations, uh, both as, as, as weapons as such and, and the way they're being used. Um, and so, so for eight years, I ran the uh, the arms division of Human Rights Watch, and um, you know it was uh, was a wonderfully stimulating experience, um, and uh, it did bring me back to the Middle East every so often. But I was mostly working on on the, on the African continent. Sure, yeah, and it, I imagine it's again really, really quite stimulating and fascinating, albeit in a in a rather depressing way. Because as you say, they they are tools, but but these weapons have an absolutely devastating impact on on social dynamics. But moving back to to the Middle East, if I may, it was around I guess twenty eleven that that I really started seeing your name cropping up more and more with your work on on the Gulf and uh, the piece that you wrote in the new in the 
Oh, God, where was it? Um, your, your piece, Barricaded in Bahrain. Yeah, the New York Review of Books, probably. the New York probably. Review of Books, yeah. that was it, yeah. So what took you to Bahrain? Well, <clears throat> so in... Um, in 2002, I was hired by uh, the International Crisis Group. Uh, I, this was uh, so I was ending my my tenure of human rights, which I was ready to move on. Uh, crisis Group came to me, and I said, um, uh, "Well, what are you offering me?" And they were offering me uh, a position based in Jordan, uh, and I was really quite ready to go back to the Middle East. Right. Uh, so, um, so I took it, and I, I was I became uh, the project director there under working under Rob Malley, who was then the Middle East program director. And Gareth Evans, who was the, the president of the crisis group at the sure. time, uh, a wonderful leadership team uh, that it has been my, my privilege to, to be able to work with. And um, the uh, so I did this really until 2011 without any interruption, mostly focused on Iraq. Uh, and the Kurds, but not only the Kurds, uh, also the constitutional process in Iraq after 2003, of course, after the U.S. invasion. Um, but so then in 2011, the Arab uprisings broke out and um, uh, suddenly, you know, our workload expanded, our team grew uh, and um, I was... Uh, uh, needed to to look at a number of issues, and I was quite eager. I'd already been to Yemen uh, before that to look at some issues there. I'd been to Lebanon for crisis. I wasn't only doing Iraq. Um, I'd been to Israel, uh, but the. Um, uh, the Arab uprisings, uh, of course, drew me in, and Bahrain was was one area that, uh, uh, in 2011, became became, of course, very important as well. And I, uh, I was available uh, to do some work there. We had nobody else, right? Uh, so that's that's how we ended up doing some research there. Uh, once again, it's a, a rather depressing story of of events post 2011, and I think your your piece in the New York Review of Books is is one of the best accounts of of what happened in the. In the uprisings in Bahrain, in terms of, of setting out the uh, the series of events and the the devastating impact on on social life and social relations across the archipelago, it's a, a really compelling, if once again tragic tale. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, these are these are short pieces, and they really are based and on and derived from longer pieces we do for for crisis group. And I remember working on Bahrain clearly cl closely with somebody who actually knew something about Bahrain because I made no such <laughs> claim. Uh, who was Toby Matisse and currently at Oxford, sure. and and so uh, you know that was a very good collaboration. And I um, I also worked later with others. So it's um, you know we, we we I became a generalist in a certain way. I'm still focused on. Iraq a lot, but um, I've always relied on on the, on the specialists on in specific countries uh, to um, you know to to help me in understanding the the, the problems and uh, ways of analyzing them. <clears throat> that well, thank you for the honesty. I think it's it's really refreshing to hear people hold their hands up and say that. Um, but there are two things that I want to to just pick out of what we've been talking about. Yours, if that's okay. One is, you've got a very clear sort of foot in both camps, if you will. You've got a, a, an excellent track record of, of academic schooling, and your educational track record is is excellent. But then you've you've gone and you've you've tried to apply this into the the policy world, into the the think tank world, if you will. What advice would you give people? from similar types of positions or, or indeed academics who want to have their work read and engaged with in, in these types of communities? 
Well, you know, there's a need for, for people in all of these communities. Uh, they're all really playing an important role sure. in the intellectual production. Um, so I am not made for the academic world personally. Um, I discovered this early on. Right. Um, I, I couldn't sit behind a desk and, and do thorough research for, for any length of time. I would go stir crazy. <laughs> sure. um, but, but but other people are very well suited for that. And so uh, Good for them. Yeah. Uh, and I learn a lot from them, obviously, because they do very thorough research. I get very frustrated because I write pieces rather quickly, um, right. mostly shorter pieces, um, because I've learned to do that, basically. Sure. And I get very frustrated when they don't get published right away. And, yeah, uh, you know, as, as I think many other people feel the same, even in academia. Uh, but the reality is in academia, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I remember I've been writing on intersecting conflicts in the Middle East now for the last uh, two years. Uh, but it started out with a piece two years ago that somebody asked me to write, which is now going to come out next March. This coming March. Oh, congratulations. It, it, Time. Yeah, thank, thank you. But meanwhile, I've written so many other things about it that have already been posted on our website. And sure. It's really dated. Um, but um, so that, that's that's one thing. So if you are you feel like you're somebody who, who wants to be an activist or a practitioner and to have uh, uh, a say on policy issues and, and influence policy makers, then academia is not the best place for you. Academia is a place for developing ideas thoroughly and to do your research on, on very thorough methodologies, uh, you know, well, well-developed methodologies, so they can be tested well. Uh, it's not as impulsive as I have to say we are in our work. We, we re- respond to events uh, in a way that in academia, of course, nobody would do. Um, that's why I say we need. there's a need for both. Sure. So if you make that choice, then uh, I'd say, you know, the NGO world is, is open and ready for you. Um, we, we need people who have... Uh, who can analyze things uh, very well. Uh, the policy world needs people like that. and uh, But they also need people who can uh, put it in words that policymakers can understand and at the length that um, uh, policymakers can, can tackle uh, in the little time that they have yeah, sure. on any particular issue. Yeah, and I, I'm realizing that. The more I speak to people in, in those worlds, the, the more I realize that time is a rather precious commodity. Yes, and more and more so. And it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a pity and, and it's a weakness and a strength in, in a sense that um, people take quick decisions because uh, through social media, everything is now happening so fast in real time. Uh, there's no real time to think. And um, foreign ministries, for example, where a lot of policy is made uh, in, the, say, the Middle East, um, people uh, simply don't have the time to, uh, and they don't have the, even units that, that take a more strategic view, um, and they don't take the time to, to sit back and have a, uh, say, a one-week uh, retreat um, in which things are discussed thoroughly. Mm. Most foreign ministries do have two-day retreats or whatever, but um, it is all rather quick, and um, it's very important that that solid information is fed into these institutions uh, and that people are forced to look at the full complexity of issues lest they take decisions that are going to backfire simply because they are not based on on really uh, a thorough understanding of the uh, of the issues and we see it in the middle east and not only in the middle east but every day uh, decisions based on uh, quick understandings that are really not based on reality whatsoever and that i guess is perhaps the role of the academic to have that slightly longer view of things 
and for sure. But again, then the academic has to translate that material into language yeah. that is uh, sure. digestible for for policymakers, sure. and that is harder for academics than it is for for analysts in in the policy world. Yeah, I would certainly agree. Joost, I'm conscious that we've taken up a lot of your time, but there's one question that I'd like to to end on, if that's okay, please. And it's a rather tricky one, but it's a theme that has has cropped up in a number of other uh, podcasts. And that's to do with the, I guess, the mental aspect of this, that that we're engaging in a part of the world that uh, that is undergoing a, a, a rather uncertain, chaotic violent set of, of processes and and change that that has a, a serious impact on the people living in the region, friends, family, etc. But it also is going to have an impact on those of us who are working on it, those of us who are studying it, who are traveling there, who are interacting with people. And I wonder if, if you have any advice for people who who are doing this in terms of maintaining a degree of, of mental health and maintaining some sort of mental balance, if you will? Well, well you know, the answer is very simple, and it's the, the, the one that maybe your doctor would give or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, it is to, to make sure that you don't get drawn in uh, in an all-absorbing way into your subject matter, but uh, make sure that you have physical exercise and that you are involved in cultural activities, maybe some volunteer work if you can. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I've stopped reading non-fiction uh, in, in many ways. I mean, I, I read non-fiction all the time during the day, but sure. uh, at night I, I, I just only read fiction because um, I, I need to escape in a way from, from the reality as it is being presented to me, and I'd like to to, to address reality in a different way, um, and that is that has proved extremely uh, therapeutic for me um, to 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 do that. So I, I insist on that. Other people will have other solutions, uh, but but I know that there is a great deal of burnout. Uh, in this community, it is very diff- difficult to to survive psychologically, mentally, uh, when all you're dealing with is is tragedy and genocide, chemical weapons uh, use, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The suffering uh, of the people that you are in contact with, you know, I've talked with people who lost their entire families. It's very difficult to have these kinds of conversations, um, and so you, you you have to put things in perspective and and uh, and take time off. Uh, it's very. I, I've learned to, to really enjoy my sabbaticals. Sure. Yeah. For what it's worth, I, I do the same thing with reading. I I have a policy of reading not of reading fiction on an evening, and some right. of my colleagues don't understand it, but they work in different disciplines. Well, I'm a total convert on that issue. Yeah. Well, I, I entirely second that wholeheartedly. <laughs> but just, I'm. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I just want to say thank you so much for for giving it up. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's been really fascinating. And uh, I look forward to reading your um, your shorter pieces in the uh, in the not too distant future, and this longer piece sometime next March. Yeah, it's not even that long. The longer one is in the works. <laughs> yeah, hold on to your hat. Wonderful. Uh, but thank you, Simon. This was a it was a good opportunity. I, I rarely talk about these things, so uh, and I certainly don't write about them. So <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank, yeah, you. thank you so much. Until the Cheers. next one. Thank you. Yes. Bye bye.